Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Sikkim speaks to Andrew Donaldson on the future of employment in South Africa. Welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. Now, this series is a collection of dialogues with leading speakers, and its aim is to bring its audiences independent insights that help them in turn formulate their own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. Today, we tackle South Africa's unemployment crisis. A chronically high unemployment rate is arguably one of South Africa's biggest challenges, and this was the situation even before COVID hit. Now, as we move into a post-pandemic world, what's the path forward for job creation in South Africa? Andrew Donaldson, who's a senior research associate of the Southern African Labor and Development Research Unit at the University of Cape Town, joins me now. Thanks so much, Andrew, for your time this morning. It's great to be with you. And we're going to be launching straight into the conversation because years ago, I sat around a table with a think tank exploring why unemployment was proving to be such an intractable problem in South Africa. Flash forward to today, and we're having the same conversation with the unemployment rate having deteriorated even further. The head of the Stats Council, however, has raised the alarm on the quality of South Africa's employment stats. So as far as reported statistics go, are we looking at a realistic unemployment level in our country or are we looking at numbers that are potentially skewed? Morning, Alicia. Well, I, I completely agree with you. This is this is our, our big issue, and it is the issue on which we, as a nation, have to think big. We really have to be much more ambitious than we are about job creation, and we need to do the things that will turn around the employment trend in the economy. So you've asked about the statistics, and uh, uh, what the Statistics Council has drawn attention to is that the response rate in the quarterly labor force survey, which is where our unemployment data comes from, has uh, that response rate has fallen quite a lot over the last two years when they've been doing the survey telephonically rather than in person uh, from about 70,000 respondents or uh, uh, members of households who are in the labor force uh, uh, two or three years ago in the survey it's down to about 30,000 and so there is a question mark about the validity of the statistics possible biases and the people who answer telephones and also just the fact that it's a comparatively small sample relative to the size of the, of the population and, and of the labor force. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, one is that the, we've known for a long time that the QLFS underrepresents higher earnings in the economy. So the QLFS asks questions about what you earn. It doesn't only ask about employment. And when you add up the aggregate of reported earnings in the QLFS, you get to a number that you have to increase by about 50% to get to the national accounts or to get to other sources of information about earnings in the, in, in the economy. So we know there's some problems about in, in, our, in our tracking of employment and earnings statistics. What is, uh, what, what, what is also relevant here is that the quarterly employment statistics survey, which is a different survey that is 
based on returns from employers, uh, based on the VAT register, public uh, state departments, government organs, and so on. Uh, so it's a much bigger sample of employees, uh, uh, 20,000 odd employers respond. So that accounts for, for, for quite a large uh, share of the formerly employed population. It doesn't cover agriculture, doesn't cover household employees, but formal employment in the QES has declined since the beginning of COVID, in other words, from the end of 2019 or the first quarter of 2020, by 400 or 500,000 formal employment. The, Q, the QLFS says employment has fallen by well over a million, maybe close to 2 million. So the QES is telling us that employment has not fallen as much or has recovered more strongly since COVID than the QLFS data is telling us. So all of that says employment is probably a bit higher than the QLFS records, but that doesn't alter the fact that we're in an employment crisis, that we have seen following that decade of growth in the 2001 to 2008 period, just before the Great Recession, when the employment grew strongly, unemployment fell from 27 or 28% down to just, just over 20%. So in six or seven years, we brought the unemployment rate down. Since then, it's back up to at least 30%. And if the QLFS is right, uh, closer to a third of the labor force, that is a catastrophically high level of unemployment. And we can get growth going, we can get investment going, we can get uh, uh, the economy moving more strongly. But if it's not accompanied by job creation, uh, then, then we will continue to have high levels of inequality and poverty. We will continue to say, Andrew, it's because we, you know, whichever way you're going to slice this, the situation is dire and we've got an employment crisis on our hands. So help us for a minute reconcile this failure to stem the tide with the various initiatives that have gotten underway with some success. I mean, we've had the Youth Employment Service Program, which has mobilized, what, 75,000 paid internships for youth work businesses. The President's Employment Stimulus, which is on track to reach one but, uh, million beneficiaries as well. Let's talk about the various things that, that should contribute to job creation. I'll go through five or six. So one is obviously growth and investment. I'm not going to talk very much about that. Uh, the the, 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 the long-term challenge, of course, is to step up investment. Much uh, higher levels of investment are needed than we currently have. We're only investing at about 13% of GDP. It's been too low for a long time. The economy has to invest. And that's a, a message for those involved in the investment, the fund management industry. We have to turn this economy around through, through, through investment and growth. Secondly, public employment programs. I'll come back to the, the private sector initiatives, the YES program in a, in a moment. What's happened in the public employment programs front? So we introduced the expanded public works program in 2000, after the 2003 uh, uh, job summit, and it grew steadily until about 2014-15, when it accounted for about a million job opportunities. Job opportunities are not equivalent to full-time employment because many of those job opportunities are three or four months. Some of them are for two or three days. The community work program operates on a two or three day a week basis. Uh, a million job opportunities in 2015 accounted for around 400,000 full-time equivalent jobs. So that's not an insignificant contribution to employment. But then in 2015, as the uh, fiscal position tightened, uh, those work opportunities fell. And then in 2020, following COVID, fell again. And so 
took those job opportunity numbers down to about 700,000 or so, full-time equivalent, uh, uh, not much more than 300,000 jobs, and accounted for less than 10 billion rand in wages paid in the economy. Now, you compare that with what we're spending uh, on uh, social uh, transfers, on income support to the poor, our employment programs are really much too small. So that's the first point I want, I want to make. We should, be, we should think far bigger about public employment. And the presidential employment stimulus, which the president introduced in the second half of 2020, and uh, was launched especially through this uh, large employment of young people in schools to assist in classrooms and to provide additional activities, sports activities, maybe security and other uh, activities in schools, added 300,000 people employed in schools for six months and a range of other, 10 or other uh, employment, employment initiatives, tells us that you can be more ambitious. You can think big about public employment. So just to get back to those numbers, took us 15 years to get to uh, some, something like uh, uh, 400,000 full-time equivalent in, uh, opportunities through, the, through the, 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 the public employment programs uh, of the EPWP, the presidential employment stimulus, especially operating through schools in six months. In fact, it was just a two or three month period of development of that program, just about doubled the number of people employed in these public employment programs. Now we have to think bigger about other sectors, health services, municipalities, police stations. We all know we need far more people looking after security on the trains, uh, contributing uh, broadly to bringing, bringing crime and creating a safer and safer society. So in public employment, we need to think more ambitiously. Andrew, and I know that you do want to get into the private sector yes. contribution as well. Before we do, though, two questions on the public side of things, right? You highlight aspects of the presidential employment stimulus that proved successful. So does this then become a more permanent feature, uh, you know, as far as you see it? Because one can only imagine the kind of... Uh, you know, uh, pushback it starts to receive when you ask the question, can we afford this line item on the budget on a sustainable basis? And that detracting from that possibility altogether, for now at least. Absolutely has to be thought about as permanent. And that's the mindset change that has to happen. The 2003 Job Summit said, let these just be temporary jobs. Let these just be, while we solve our unemployment problem, et cetera, et cetera. You can't think about it like that. We have a deep unemployment problem. And we have to realize and we have to incorporate into our planning of these programs that they're doing useful things. They're preventing fires, they're assisting in schools, they're providing uh, community-based health services, they're, they're providing early childhood development programs. These are not temporary needs. So they're delivering public services, public goods, if you like, uh, in, a, in a way that is employment intensive. Now, I think they should all operate at the equivalent of the minimum wage at least. Uh, mm. And that means if they're short-term project, if they're two or three days a week, then you, it's, a, it's an equivalent calculated on an hourly wage Andrew, basis. And that's a good place to bring in a question that actually came through from a viewer uh, today, you know, asking the question, which poses the greater risk to growth? Social, political instability, or fiscal distress? Well, they're both threats. Uh, social, political stresses can play out dramatically in ways that really 
uh, turn the tide against countries, uh, uh, create, cre create lasting damage uh, in shocking ways. So fiscal distress typically plays out more slowly. So there are different kinds of, if you like, dangers, different kinds of threats. So they're both threats. I don't want to underplay, uh, underplay one or the other. But I think the point I want to make about the public employment programs is they are comparatively low cost relative to uh, full-time permanent established employment. I think eventually these jobs should work their way into ongoing permanent services as productivity improves, as the training levels improve. They become part of the education and health systems. They become part of our crime prevention systems, they come, become part of fighting fires and, uh, and, and building townships and building, building, and, uh, building, building the economy. Uh, but they have to be quite low cost and employment intensive uh, while the economy is growing, while the economy is catching up. They serve a huge redistributional purpose. Relative to what we're spending on social grants, we're still spending far too little on wages in public employment programs. Andrew, many would raise an eyebrow given the threat the public sector wage bill already poses to our finances. So how would we even begin to square that given the fiscal constraint and unionized labor market that heightens the wariness of venturing further, you know, getting any further entrenched here? Well, you really have to work the, the arithmetic. So doubling wages on the public employment programs is the equivalent of uh, about 5% of the public sector wage bill. So it's about relativities. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I'm not wanting to underplay the fiscal challenges. We're in a tough fiscal environment. Debt is a, debt is a risk. The Minister of Finance has to be concerned about that. But in the priorities that government sets itself, these programs need to be prioritized, need to be prioritized to grow over time. Uh, and I do think that the really if you like, big balance that has to be struck here in a context of uh, the extension of the social relief of distress grant for another year that has been announced and the public debate that is going on about basic income support. We do need to be sure that we get the balance right between income support for households and employment programs. And, uh, and uh, we need to move on to talk about sort of private sector and what, what, what contributes to grow, uh, employment creation in the, in, in the wider economy as well. Uh, but I do want to say that we all have an interest in business, or, you know, organ uh, unions, uh, we all have an interest in ensuring that we grow employment alongside income relief to households. And I think we need to follow international developments and international understanding here of the links between employment services, assistance to work seekers to get into work opportunities and income support. In OECD countries, these systems developed during the course of the 20th century, income support for work seekers, for those who uh, are looking for work opportunities, is part of the unemployment insurance and unemployment benefits and employment services system. We're in the unusual position of trying to develop those income support systems as part of our social assistance system that's looked after by social development departments. I want to see much greater interaction between the Department of Employment and Labor, the Unemployment Insurance Fund, and its financing arrangements, the benefits it's, that it provides, and support for work seekers. I think that's the direction okay. which we have to go. In. Andrew, as much as you say all of that, the line has always been government should not be in the business of creating jobs. It should be working on creating an enabling environment for business so that business, private sector, fulfills the role. And surely now, 
you know, that the crux of it. If we look at something like the youth employment scheme, which is something you were going to touch on, uh, you know, should we not be thinking about broadening the scope there and looking at how it can be employed and applicable for universal benefit, you know, the whole labor market, as opposed to for just the youth? Well, I do think there that takes us into a discussion that's about our overall approach to development and the balance between what government does and 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 and, and what uh, businesses do and the growth of opportunities in the wider economy. So we have a complicated economy, a very unequal economy with well-established formal businesses that are operating in a global context, attracting huge amounts of capital into mining or industry. We also have township economies, uh, informal settlement activities, rural areas in which uh, economic activity is much more volatile, much more vulnerable, much more uh, uncertain. And, uh, and, 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 and outside in, in to a considerable extent of the formal system. So we have to, we have to here think about uh, growth of economic opportunities in the established economy alongside growth of opportunities in informal areas and, and, and the township economy. I think we have to invest in a more equal economy. So I think that and as a matter of public investment, but also in creating opportunities for business development, we need to be more ambitious. We need to think bigger about township development, residential development, housing, and the investments and economic activities, not just about public spending, it's also about business opportunities that contribute to improved residential living conditions. And I hear, I want to make a point here about history. Uh, you know, we, we're uh, sometimes a little over uh, preoccupied with the new opportunities of the fourth industrial revolution and the technology changes that have, that have, that have been uh, the, 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 the drama of the last 20 or 30 years in, glo in global development. But Robert Gordon has written a great book on the history of the American economy, says the investments and the technology changes and the innovations that happened from the 1870s to around the 1900s were the things that most changed living standards in America, and he would say globally. And when you think about that, water services, housing investment, improved transport, uh, uh, telecommunications, those investments are still incomplete and very poorly served in many parts of our economy. We still have a huge amount of investment to do, creation of opportunities that contributes to improved living conditions in things that the world has known how to do for 100 years. Uh, and in the structure of our investment, the collapse of building investment and housing investment in the last six years, uh, the deterioration in municipal infrastructure maintenance, uh, the lags and backlogs in our housing and, and, uh, and, and water services, these have to be prioritized, not just by municipalities, but also uh, through the Public-private partnerships and the and 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 the uh, funding of services and joint uh, operation of services that bring in private sector capacity into meeting these basic needs. So that's one part of thinking about business development and uh, and, and and the wider economy. But I also think that we have done far too little to support labor-intensive industry. Uh, we've thought for a long time that we don't want to go down the Southeast Asian routes of low-wage low, low wage industrialization. We've thought that we can't compete, but wages are higher, much higher now in China and Southeast Asia than they were 20 years ago. Uh, and it's not that hard to design ways in which 
the fiscus, taxpayers, can subsidize and support labor-intensive industry in its what economists call infant industry stages in those phases when it's still building productivity and growing. Andrew, let's get a bit specific there. I mean, what are some of the parameters worth exploring when it comes to the incentives that could be tabled? And are those incentives then, you know, greater, the more labor intensive the industry is? Should they be? And I know I'm putting a whole lot of questions at you here, but yes. do you think that's going to be incentive enough to draw the kind of investment that's needed that's going to then help inculcate a better patient capital mindset? Yes, I think that I think that's the key question. And uh, incentives don't work immediately. Incentives, if you get the design of incentives right, they work over time, uh, and their impact their their impact grows over time. The key incentive is uh, the in the cost of labor. It's in the uh, uh, subsidization of, 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 of employment that is the underlying logic of the youth employment incentive that operates through the tax system, but it's only available to young work seekers in their first jobs for two years. That's not enough because that doesn't change the demand for labor. That doesn't change the economics of operating a labor intensive industry. So that should be a permanent subsidy that's available to all low wage employment. That's the way the US economy uh, supports low-wage and vulnerable households. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit in the American system. The structure of our youth employment incentive is very similar to that. It should be available to all employees in firms that are vulnerable and are in the early stages of productivity growth and are employment intensive. So that's the first thing I, I, I would do is use the fiscal mechanisms that we have already in place, that SARS has the administrative capacity to administer to change the terms of trade in favor of employment intensive industry. Now, you can extend that into agriculture. That's a little trickier because agricultural employment is often seasonal and the measurement of it is trickier. The second bigger reform is that, that is needed is in social security. And you bring in employers, employers and employees into the system of social security, unemployment insurance, but funding of pensions, uh, disability insurance and, uh, and, and protection against associated risks. Uh, you bring them into the system uh, uh, through either the tax treatment of these contributions, that's how our retirement funding system works, but that only operates above the tax threshold, or through a subsidy, and the subsidy is the key. You can link it to the wage incentive or the employment incentive that I talked about a moment ago, but the key is to ensure that there's a fiscal incentive that gets low-wage employees and therefore uh, is really at no cost to employers to bring their employees into the social security system. You do that by subsidizing the contribution to uh, social security arrangements, the unemployment benefit system together with retirement funding for those who earn uh, at, uh, uh, incomes that are below the tax threshold. That's how it operates in different ways in different countries. It's not a particularly difficult reform to us to, for us to do, but we need to bring together the policy uh, 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 departments involved in that and, uh, and get on with that social security reform that has been under discussion for 15 years. Andrew, that does come up against the, the rhetoric that is constant at the moment, that the economy fails to create jobs on the back of a skills shortage, that the skills pipeline we have isn't what industry actually needs, you know, uh, you know despite government spending, what, 440 billion rand a year on education and skills, our young people don't have the skills they need to be employable. Uh, an audience question that's come through, what will the youth need to study to ensure employment in the future? 
Well, we need to grow. I, I don't have an answer to what should the youth study because we need lots of skills and, 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 and so on. So other people <laughs> maybe should, should, should respond to that. But I want to say this about education and training, building the education system, dealing with the defects, dealing with the shortcomings of our public education system, of, uh, of, of the uh, uh, architecture of our further education training system, of our universities and so on, that takes time. And uh, addressing the, the, the challenges of learning in the primary phase of schooling is the foundation of that. But that doesn't change the skills uh, supply situation in the short run. That takes time to work its way into the labor market. But there's an important lesson in economic history here that is often forgotten. And it was written up in an important uh, economic paper by the great American economist Kenneth Arrow in the early 1960s, in a paper called Learning by Doing. And the message of that is the skills that really make a difference to productivity are learnt as a complement to investment. It's when businesses invest in new technologies and bringing in new machinery that they have to train the workers to use those, 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 those new techniques. And that's the learning that counts in productivity. So I believe in learning by doing. Yes, we need a further education system. We need stronger relationships between businesses and our colleges. There's the architecture of the skills training system that I'd like to see change in various ways that would strengthen the links between businesses, local chambers of industry, and local colleges where, uh, both in the public and the private sector, where, where our further education system uh, needs to grow and, and be improved. But investment, growth, creation of new job opportunities, bringing in industry, uh, in industrial technolo technology uh, associated with growth into uh, global value chains and so on, that indirectly leads to productivity improvements. And so it's not just about the education system, it's also about investment and the indirect contribution of that to skills and, uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that underlies productivity improvement and, and growth. That said, Andrew, does rigid labor legislation not make growing a workforce still very tricky and employers more hesitant? Or is it naive to think that deregulation will solve the problem? I think there's some kinds of deregulation that are important. I do think when you have sectors, sector-based uh, in, in industrial agreements, bargaining council agreements that are then extended to firms that maybe operate in a very different way in different parts of the country without the kind of skilled labor force that are available in, in say Cape Town or the, or, or, the, or, or the Durban area. I do think there are regulatory issues that need to be addressed, but I don't think we should think that just deregulating the labor market, letting the market work in wage determination and in terms and conditions of employment, uh, is, a, is, a, is a strategy for, uh, uh, for, 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 for employment creation and, 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 and progress, partly because when unemployment is very high, workers and their representatives, unions, are rightly concerned about job losses, because if you lose a job in an environment in which unemployment is very high, your prospects of finding a job again are very, are very poor. So you're not going to move to a completely deregulated labor market and solve these problems that way stability of the systems, institutional continuity, so that businesses learn how to operate within the labor relations environment that we have with the CCMA and the other institutions that are in place, making those institutions work better 
is 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 a better way of thinking about these challenges than simply doing away with the regulations. Yeah. But we still need an open labor market. You know, yes, we are well aware of an education system that fails to train people for work. A large part of the structural reform needing to happen in that space where quality of education is not something everyone has access to. But even when it does, you know, large numbers still cannot find work. So our policies too rigid. Should we dare go down down the path of scrapping some of those um th some of that red tape we need a we need an open labor market and we need a labor market that works for work seekers uh so i've talked a bit about the things that can that, that can contribute over time to creating more demand for labor but we also need to overcome the uh, uh, dysfunctionality in the transition between school and work for so many people coming so many people coming out of a weak schooling background just don't know what they're good at, don't know what they can do, and don't know how uh, the labor market works, don't understand the disciplines of work. And we've learned a huge amount in the last uh, uh, decade or so from the work of organizations like Harambe and others who have developed uh, good work seeker support programs, programs that put young people through work readiness uh, activities that assist in making the links between the kinds of things that people are good at and are interested in and the kinds of job opportunities that are, that, uh, that are out there in the services industry. The world of work is much more complicated now than it used to be. Many different sorts of work, many different kinds of skills that are needed. And, uh, and so those work seeker support programs uh, need to be strengthened and need, and, and need support. So that gets back to that employment services role that I talked about earlier. It's not just about what the Department of Employment and Labor does, it's also about the businesses that are providing these services. Especially in a context where, you know, that balancing act is pretty uh, a pretty tricky one to perform, uh, where you need to balance that, uh, you know, with uh, the transformation agenda, broadly speaking, where a fundamentally flawed education system doesn't put everyone on an equal footing when it comes to developing knowledge and skill and accessing those work opportunities. Well, it puts, we, we haven't, the output from our education system is very, very unequal still. And so employment opportunities in the labor market has to adapt to that. We have to have a diversity of employment opportunities and, uh, and, 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 and growth in different sectors of the economy to cater for the diversity of, uh, of, of, of skills and of, and of work seeker needs. Um, and so, so they're not some single solutions to this. This is about an opening up in a much broader sense of uh, encouraging diversity in our economy. Yeah, Andrew, just to sum up, how would you say we go about accelerating efforts to create real and credible pathways into the economy for now half of the society that is currently shut out, uh, shut out. I read a piece penned by uh, Colin Coleman last week asking, you know, what smart choices can we make to reshape the contract between those inside and outside our economy by providing new economic pathways? I think it is about both public and private sector initiatives. So I've talked a bit about public employment programs. I think that we can expand those programs we can double them in three years and double them again in three years after that. Those are not unrealistic targets. Uh, uh, and I would emphasize the role of municipalities. Municipalities, uh, perhaps working with local community work program sites have a key role to play in that. The municipal landscape is especially important here and, that, and its links with businesses is also critical. So if I can put in one last thought that's about the links between the partnerships between 
government and business, it's about local collaboration and local coordination. I find when I talk to municipal officials, they often don't know the local business community, business leaders. There are often uh, a very weak or even missing uh, coordination institutions, forums through which municipalities collaborate with, talk to local businesses, deal with the challenges of skills development of the colleges in the neighborhood, deal with the possible contribution and role of business in addressing municipal service delivery challenges, and address the opportunities for building local industrial opportunities, expanding the high street, putting in business opportunities into uh, township environments, and generally strengthening the local economic development challenges that are, if you like, joint business government uh, re responsibilities. It's not just about national policy, it's also about local coordination of these initiatives. Andrew, before I let you go, if not, are we looking at a building up towards our own, uh, our very own Arab Spring moment? Is an Arab Spring on the horizon or in the making as far as you see it? I, I, I think that our context is different. Uh, so the Arab Spring in an important sense in those countries uh, was uh, in those countries that were, and obviously the countries, the country, countries, very good countries that were oil rich was about uh, reliance on public employment that was almost for all graduates a guarantee of opportunity in Libya or in Tunisia or in, or in Egypt. And by the 1990s, that just wasn't plausible anymore. The, 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 the employment needs of the public sector were not sufficient to absorb and there was very little diversification of the economy and growth of manufacturing, et cetera. So we have, a, we have in some ways a more diverse business environment. Uh, and so I, I, I think that our risks are different, but I, I nonetheless think those risks are real. If we rely uh, only on income support and our uh, social assistance system, for ensuring redistribution, we will find that that's not enough, that you can't build sustainable futures, you can't build decent livelihoods, and you can't build a more equal society unless you're making progress through investment and job creation in opening up employment opportunities uh, to all and bringing the unemployment rate down uh, systematically. We need to set targets for that, and we need to ensure that our growth is more, more balanced in, 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 its, in the creation of employment opportunities than it is at present. Andrew Donaldson, it's been a pleasure chatting to you this morning. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective with us today. Hopefully it triggers more conversation and a breeding of ideas that translates into real effective action. To our audience, thank you for joining us. Remember, this webinar will be available via podcast, so we encourage you to keep the conversation going via the social media campaign using hashtag ThinkBigPSG. This series is free, it's shareable, it's open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. We also welcome any feedback, so communicate with us and look out for our next speaker in the ThinkBig series. From me, Alicia Second, it's bye for now. Thank you.